Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There are few mythical creatures as iconic as the dragon, found in all sorts of legends, mythology, and folklore from around the globe. Every culture seems to have its own spin on what exactly a dragon is. These stories, as well as the overall appearance, have changed over time and differ vastly depending on location. So join me today as we dive into the history of dragons and try to identify the differences and similarities between these mercurial monsters. When we think of dragons in modern fantasy and storytelling, the winged, fire-breathing monster is probably the most common image that comes to mind. However, as we've already alluded to, that wasn't always the case, and in order for us to find the origin of these stories, we have to go back thousands of years across numerous continents. The English word dragon derives from the Greek dragon, Ancient Greece had numerous monsters that were classified as dragons, however none of them were flying fire breathers, they were much closer to large serpents. At their very core, dragons in Greek mythology were large serpents with multiple layers of razor-sharp teeth and often multiple heads. These dragons were normally found in two different locations, the most common being in the water. Sacred springs would often be guarded by one of these serpents. The second would be guarding some kind of treasure, a secret grove or even just somewhere where prying eyes were not meant to be. Some examples you may have heard me cover before included the Colchian or Colchis dragon, which appears in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, as the dragon that slept in the grove of Ares guarding none other than the Golden Fleece. Those familiar with the labours of Heracles may recall another dragon which guarded the golden apples in the Garden of the Hesperides, otherwise known as the Hesperian Dragon or Ladon. The Hydra or the Lunaean Hydra was another dragon encountered by Heracles during his labours. The Hydra was found in the springs of Lerna and was famed for its nine heads. It also had regenerative properties, cut off one of its heads and from that stump would grow two in its place. There are dozens and dozens of named dragons in Greek mythology, many of them being found in water and used as guardians, or even sometimes as a kind of vessel to enact the punishments of the gods. There are however some deviations. Medea had a chariot that was pulled by two flying serpents. Demeter also had a chariot which was pulled across the sky by two winged serpents. Just to give you an idea of how broad the term dragon once was, creatures such as Cetus, Scylla, Typhon, and his wife Echidna were all considered types of dragons. Ironically, one of the biggest influences on medieval dragons comes from one of Greek mythology's least dragon-like monsters. 
although it was still technically classified as a dragon. The Chimera is a hybrid creature that doesn't necessarily have too many obvious traits of a dragon, but its influence does make sense. The offspring of Typhon and Echidna, the Chimera was composed of three animals. The front half is a lion, the middle and hind legs are that of a goat, and a serpent's head making up the tail. One part of the Chimera that does resemble a modern dragon is the goat head that was able to breathe fire. The reason we know this had an influence on the idea of medieval dragons goes back to the story of Saint George and the Dragon. The groups of artists who created the iconography surrounding the story of Saint George and the Dragon would use Hellenistic and Roman templates of the hero Bellerophon slaying the Chimera. Side to side, the influence and resemblance is uncanny. This also allows us to segue nicely into our next segment, Dragons in the Medieval Period. Dragons in Medieval Europe were the creature or monster of choice. Some of this influence came from Christianity, and some of it came from the Greeks and Romans. These stories followed a similar pattern, the knight in shining armour who saves the damsel in distress or even the entire town which had been plagued by said dragon. During this period, we moved away from stories where dragons were mostly guardians or protectors, to now being antagonists or the villains of the story. The heroes of these stories were not just limited to brave knights. It was fairly common for a dragon to be slain or repelled by a saint, and thus we start to see the religious influence. The story of St. George and the Dragon begins with a village that is being extorted by a dragon. Every year the dragon demanded a tribute of livestock, otherwise it would destroy the village. Eventually its demands outgrew the village and the supply of livestock was gone. There was no other choice but to start sacrificing humans as tribute. Eventually the princess was chosen and in rode St. George, a well-respected Christian soldier who would save the day and slay the dragon. This story has been retold many times. One of the more popular iterations comes from a collection of stories known as the Golden Legend, retold by the Archbishop of Genoa. This telling of the story is slightly more detailed. The village in question was in a place he called Silene, located in Libya. The village was plagued by a dragon who lived in the nearby waters. The villagers pleaded with the dragon to spare them. They agreed to give the dragon two sheep every day as a tribute. This eventually became one sheep and one man until there was no other choice but to start giving their children away, which were chosen at random. One day when they drew lots, it was the king's daughter who was chosen. He tried his best to bribe the village, offering them all of his wealth, but they declined his offer. The young princess was taken to the lake, dressed as a bride and offered as a sacrifice. St. George arrived at this lake and the princess told him to leave as the dragon would be there soon. St. George declined, and when the dragon emerged from the water he made the sign of a cross, before charging forward on his horse and lunging at the dragon with his lance. Whilst the dragon was wounded, he took the princess's girdle and wrapped it around the dragon's neck. He then took his new pet dragon back to the village which nearly scared everyone to death. 
He offered to kill the dragon as long as everyone in the village consented to being baptised and becoming Christian. The entire village, including the king, became Christians, and as promised, St. George beheaded the dragon with his sword. On the exact spot the dragon died, the king built a church dedicated to the Virgin Mary. At the altar of this church, there was a spring. The water was said to be able to cure any ailment or disease. So how did this legend, which was mostly told in the Roman Empire, find its way to other parts of Western Europe? Well, that would be through the Crusades. Many knights that took part in the First Crusade believed they fought alongside St. George in Jerusalem, and so the legend was spread and almost became tradition. The Christian iconography of a saint or soldier slaying a dragon on horseback existed even before St. George, as early as the 7th century, although there is some contention as to whether these figures were dragons. The oldest depiction we have would be that of St. Theodore slaying a dragon in the 10th century, earning him the name Theodore the Dragon Slayer. The motif of the saintly dragon slayer would be transferred from St. Theodore to St. George, and it would then be mostly associated with him. From a religious standpoint, there was more to dragons than just being terrifying monsters. Many have equated dragons to symbolising the conflicts between Christian and pagan beliefs. The dragons in these stories were symbolic of pagans threatening the virtue of Christian maidens. The knight eventually slaying the dragon was symbolic of Christianity defeating what was seen as the pagan menace. One of the more strange stories involves Margaret of Antioch, otherwise known as Saint Marina the Great Martyr. Margaret was born into a pagan family. Her mother died shortly after her birth and she was taken care of by a Christian nurse. After taking a vow to God, she was disowned by her father and adopted by her nurse. The Roman governor Olibrius took a liking to her and asked her to marry him, but she would have to denounce Christianity. Furious Margaret would dare to decline his proposal, she was imprisoned and tortured. One night Margaret was visited by Satan in the shape of a dragon. Her prayers were ignored and the dragon swallowed her whole. Inside of his stomach, Margaret made the shape of a cross, which caused the dragon to feel like his insides were being torn apart. He would eventually open his mouth and Margaret miraculously escaped unharmed. However, she was decapitated soon after for declining the marriage, so there is no happy ending in this story, just the devil taking the form of a dragon. The association of dragons with acts of evil and demons would remain in religious stories. Tales of dragons appearing and swallowing rich noblemen and women who had sinned were fairly common. The story of Saint Marcellus, a bishop in Paris, involves a dragon entering his small village and devouring a noble woman who had sinned. Marcellus struck the dragon multiple times, and using a leash he led the dragon out of the village, banishing him to the forest he came from, never to return. Definitely some similarities to the story of St. George and the Dragon. 
The medieval period in Western Europe is when the images and depictions of dragons began to change. The towering, multiple-headed serpents the Greeks and Romans spoke about began to look more like lizards or dinosaurs with four legs and bat-like wings. One theory is that these images were just drawn incorrectly in early medieval bestiaries, and honestly it's not even that much of a stretch. Many of these depictions do simply resemble a serpent with legs and wings added on. Not exactly the modern day dragons we're used to, but they still differ from the original depictions. If we place them on a timeline of sorts, we can see the gradual change or evolution in how we used to depict dragons to how we depict them today. The idea of four-legged dragons isn't something we see until the 15th century. This is also around the time when medieval bestiaries in Scotland, Ireland and England began to distinguish between different types of dragons. Those with four legs were the common dragon, and those who had two were considered a wyvern. Both regular dragons and wyverns were used throughout medieval Britain as symbols on crests and banners. The Welsh flag itself contains a red dragon. Some of the early Welsh manuscripts describe a battle between a red dragon and an invading white dragon. The red representing the Britons, and the white representing the Saxon invaders. One of my favourite stories in Norse mythology regarding a dragon is the story of Fafnir. This story begins with the dwarven king Hreidmar and his three sons Fafnir, Regin and Ota. Hreidmar and his sons were all capable of shapeshifting. Ota was a great fisherman who would take the form of an otter. One day when fishing, he was killed by Loki who had mistaken him for an ordinary otter. Loki, a guest in Hreidmar's kingdom, presented him with the spoils of his hunt. However, the dwarves immediately recognised their brother. Hreidmar and his sons captured Loki and used him as ransom, demanding that Odin provide them with Ota's waiting gold. Odin accepted, leaving the responsibility of gathering the gold to Loki, as this was his mess to fix. Loki remembered seeing a giant pike in the same river as Ota hiding his treasure. The fish was the dwarf Anvari. Loki returned to the river and caught the pike, forcing Anvari to shapeshift back and take him to his fortune. Anvari had no choice and took Loki to his treasure located behind a waterfall. He explained that his magical ring Anvaranot was the cause of his great treasure. He pleaded with Loki, he could take all of the treasure, but not the magical ring. And so Loki did as expected. He took the entire treasure, along with the magical ring, back to Hreidmar to make up for murdering his son. Before leaving, Anvari cursed the ring to bring misfortune and destruction to whoever possessed it. Loki handed over the treasure to pay his debt to Hreidmar. As the ring was cursed, he also gave him the ring as a gesture of goodwill. Little did Hreidmar know the ring's curse had already begun to take root in his kingdom. Fafnir and Regin began to resent their father. They wanted the ring and his treasure all for themselves. Eventually, they could not control their desire, and so they killed their father. 
Fafnir then transformed into a dragon and forced his brother Regin out of what was now his kingdom. He remained in the form of a dragon so he could guard his treasure. Fafnir would terrorize the surrounding villages and breathe poison into the land around his kingdom so no one would dare to enter. No one except for the hero Sigurd. The Volsunga saga details his adventures as well as the death of Fafnir. Regin assisted the hero Sigurd in reforging his father's broken sword, Gram. In return, Sigurd would slay the dragon Fafnir. He advised Sigurd to dig a hole at the stream Fafnir visited. There he would be able to wait and ambush his brother. Disguised as an old man, Odin advised to maybe dig multiple holes to drain the dragon's blood. When Fafnir appeared, Sigurd stabbed him in the shoulder. Before Fafnir died, he asked who the man who killed him was and who had sent him. He figured out that it was his brother Regin who was responsible, and told Sigurd that Regin would also be responsible for his death. Sigurd cut out Fafnir's heart, and Regin who had returned to his father's kingdom began to drink Fafnir's blood. Upon seeing the heart, he requested Sigurd gave him Fafnir's heart to eat. Sigurd began to roast Fafnir's heart over the fire. Whilst doing so, he burnt his finger, and when he placed it in his mouth, Fafnir's blood granted him the power to understand the speech of birds. He could overhear them discussing Regin and his treacherous ways. The birds advised him to eat the heart for himself and slay Regin. Sigurd ate part of the heart. He then took out his sword and decapitated Regin. And thus ends the bloodline of Hreidmar. Now if you're thinking this story sounds slightly familiar to that of a certain Mr. Tolkien, that's because Tolkien was a huge admirer of Norse mythology, and its influences are quite apparent in his work. The magical ring that brings disaster and misfortune, corrupting those in its possession, is rather similar to the One Ring. Fafnir himself can be compared to several characters. Smaug is a greedy dragon who protects his stolen treasure in a dwarven kingdom being the slightly more obvious comparison. Fafnir's greed and obsession which lead to him murdering those around him whom he cares about is mirrored in Tolkien's Gollum. Both characters are corrupted by the cursed ring and develop into more monstrous forms of themselves. In some of Tolkien's unpublished and lesser-known works, he describes the gold-hoarding dragon Glaurung, who does not breathe fire, but instead poison. Much like dragons in Norse mythology, he is also wingless. When he is killed by the character Thorin, they also have a conversation similar to that of Sigurd and Fafnir. In East Asian culture, dragons have a slightly different appearance, but where they really differ is in what they represent and symbolize. So far we've seen dragons as protectors and guardians. We saw they became symbols of greed and evil. In some cases, they even represented the devil. Either way, they became somewhat of a bad omen, creatures that were feared. In China, dragons are seen as signs of good fortune that appear to those who are deserving. They represent strength and power. Someone of high esteem who had achieved great things would be compared to a dragon, whereas someone who had achieved nothing would be compared to a creature such as a worm. It's fair to say that in terms of an animal hierarchy in China, dragons were at the very top. 
and this is reflected in their mythology and storytelling. The chosen companion or mount of their gods and heroes was almost always a dragon. The Chinese dragon, known as Lung, is normally depicted as a four-legged serpent-like creature, which is why its origin is thought to be from a snake or alligator. Given their association with strength and power, dragons were a symbol used by Chinese emperors. One recurring theme amongst the oldest depictions of dragons is their association with bodies of water. Here dragons were seen as rulers of waterfalls, rivers, and the sea. There are even four dragon kings, each representing the four seas or major bodies of water in China. They were also thought to control the weather, the dragon king being referred to as the dispenser of rain. In Korea, dragons are fairly similar to their Chinese counterparts, however they are known to have a much larger beard. In Egyptian mythology, there is the giant serpent Apep, who resides in the underworld. Apep was the embodiment of chaos, the serpent of the Nile, or the evil dragon, the greatest enemy of Ra. Every day there would be a battle between Apep and the god Ra. Apep was forced to remain in the underworld from sunrise until sunset. A great battle between the two would ensue in the darkness from which Ra would emerge the victor, meaning he would ride his barge across the sky the following morning and that there would be another sunrise. Apep, much like the Greek and other ancient dragons, took the form of a serpent and bears very little resemblance to modern-day dragons. As we've seen today, dragons throughout the ages have changed dramatically, and not just in appearance but also in their character. A greedy, gold-hoarding creature with contempt for everyone around them is a fairly common trope in modern fantasy. You can find stories where dragons are noble creatures, protectors and guardians as they were in the past. However, these stories aren't as common. We rarely see wingless dragons that resemble serpents. We honestly don't even see the medieval depictions of dragons often. The medium-sized reptilian creatures with small bat-like wings have been replaced by these enormous and grand monsters with huge wingspans that breathe fire and soar through the sky. It's difficult to look at a modern dragon and guess a creature of origin as we used to. What once resembled a snake or crocodile has become an amalgamation of many aspects and different creatures. The dragon, despite not being a real creature, has very much become its own creature.